We are responsible. If things will fail, we just have to say, "Hey, we screwed up. Let's fix it. Let's find out what's the problem." Don't be shy about that sense of urgency. I don't think there's an eternal differentiator. That was Lisa Su, CEO of Nopsec, world leader in cybersecurity exposure management. On this episode, Lisa and I talked about the rapidly evolving use cases around attack surface and cyber exposure management. We also dive into what it was like growing up in Beijing, her move to the U.S., and what she learned leading a high-growth cybersecurity company through a global crisis. Welcome to this week's episode of Capital Geek. Lisa Sue, thank you so much for coming to the show. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you for having me, Josh. It's a pleasure. I, I've been looking forward to this for weeks, and I can't wait to get going. I want to talk about your company and what you guys are doing, and sort of what's coming. But I also want to talk about your background and how, sort of how you got here into this leadership position in tech. Maybe just start with just giving us a really short introduction to what your company does and who you are, and then I want to back up and ask about your background and where you grew up and things like that. Sure, sounds good. So Nopsec is a cybersecurity technology company. We're solving one main problem about managing cyber exposures. So we're the leader in the space and、uh, understanding what are the exposure impact for enterprise customers, taking a very proactive approach,、uh, augmenting with offensive security capabilities and machine learning to help a customer get to actually three things. One is a complete visibility of what customer owns, what other exposures in terms of a cyber. Second is automated from a detection all the way to remediation, provide a full lifecycle cyber exposure management. And then the last piece is about enable customer with this powerful analytics to answer questions, communicate exposure to the various stakeholders, whether it's executive, a board. Or IT folks or DevOps or who are carrying out the day-to-day responsibility, you know, to achieve the single goal is reduce exposure. Well, I can't wait to dive into that deeper. Thank you for the teaser. I want to get more to that later, but I'd love to hear from you, like where you grew up and and what it was like there, and maybe what your parents did. If that sort of helped send you down a road of high tech, or, or what motivated you to head this direction? Yeah, actually, it's a great question. Nobody asked me that before. Um, I was born in Beijing, China.、Uh, very, very different country back then compared to where it is now. And my parents are the typical classic Chinese parents, always focused on education. You know, they're both in the telecom、uh, information technology space, but in the early days, it's very, very new for China. So I had the opportunity to pursue my higher education in the U.S. I went to Boston, studied at a Boston college. Didn't really plan to stay here, to be honest. I was just curious. You know, I visited Europe before I came to the U.S. because the U.S. is really a big question mark for me. You know, coming growing up in China, you know, Chinese always proud of five thousand years of history. You know. And then I was really curious about what is possible here. You know, there's American Dream Story, there's movies, but there's also reality. Moving from Beijing to Boston, it was quite different. You know, in relative, Boston is a smaller town compared to the size of Beijing, which is the size of Belgium. I had a lot of learnings. I didn't realize I had a little bit cultural shock at the beginning. You know, there 
they're still very, not much diverse, the environment when I first moved to Boston. And it was very interesting learning. And I ended up staying here, worked for a number of companies, you know, Accenture, KPMG, Blue Cross Blue Shields, traveled worldly. There was a couple of years that I claimed non-tax residency in the US. You know, you really sleep out of your suitcases, but learned a lot, really learned a lot. It was a great learning journey. I grew up in a small town in the mountains in Arkansas. And to give you an idea of how small, there were only 26 kids in my class. And that was all the kids within probably 30 miles of that school. So all the farms and the dairy farmers and the beef farmers, and then people that lived in town. I lived on a farm on top of a mountain, just right outside of town, about five miles. And I'd never spoken to anyone who wasn't a white Protestant Christian until basic training. I mean, it was a very, very self-contained area. And I think that's been one of my favorite aspects of working in high tech. It's allowed me to meet people from all different places, of all different backgrounds, all different races and lifestyles. And the travel also for me has been really an important part of it. Um, I was thinking just the other night, I, I was in the military in the U.S. Air Force, and I really didn't see much of the world that way, mostly just a few places in the U.S. But afterwards in tech, I had to see Singapore and Sydney and you know, all throughout you know, Western and Eastern Europe and several places in the Middle East. And it's really fantastic what a modern career in tech can do in terms of opening doors to broaden your experience with other people and other places. Actually, there's a scientific research behind it. The traveling actually is a very brain stimulating experience. You know, you get out of your status quo, you see different people, food, sightseeings, and how other people live. I always say you cannot judge until you live there, not as a tourist. Tourists, you have a very different lens, but when you live there, you, we probably have a better appreciation of what are important for people or not. You know, you made a very good point about we come from different diverse backgrounds. So now in New York City, right, you know, it's a melting pot. But on the other hand is, I think human beings are all same to some extent. It doesn't matter what language, skin of color. People want to have their own path, their own journey. I want to make my own mark in the world. What is that? What is that place? and they want to be recognized. They want to have a better life. They want to be happy. It doesn't matter what language we speak, but those are common values. And working in the startup, we're almost a United Nation. We have people from all different backgrounds, different places. And we have actually this uh, every Friday before the pandemic, we always order lunch. So every Friday lunch will be a different cuisine. That's absolutely is true. It's the value, it's the diversity. And uh, I'm really happy the world has started to embrace that. So I keep talking to a lot of folks when we have interview. I said, let's celebrate diversity, women, all of this, not one day per year, not March 8th. You know, it should be every day. You know, I, I think you're so right. And for me, I've, I've always loved diversity, but I had no exposure to it. You know, I never met someone who wasn't white or wasn't my religion or, you know, wasn't straight or cisgendered or any of those things before moving down here. And it's just opened up a world of possibilities and wonderful relationships that I value tremendously in my life that never would have happened otherwise. And, you know, I agree with you I, as an investor, um, you know, I've got a couple dozen companies in my portfolio. Now that we're all working pretty much remote, we have team meetings and we have people from South Africa and Colombia and Argentina and Mexico, Eastern Europe and the Czech Republic. 
And then all over the US or Canada, all on one meeting, all on Zoom. And it's really difficult to even differentiate, you know, where people might be living. And so I think that it's interesting because as cryptocurrency becomes more commonplace, especially within tech, and as our knowledge workers are dispersed to wherever they want to live, I think we're going to have to see some wage stabilization because it's one thing to pay people vastly different wages when you're sending work to those countries. But when you're doing the work together and you're all working over Zoom, does it really make sense to pay someone three or four times as much money just because they live you know, in Texas or New York versus Mexico or Colombia? I'm not sure it does if they're delivering the same value of work. And so I, I'm pretty excited about where the future might take us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, pandemic also opened our vision for something we always take for granted, right? Before, we're very much self-centric, our own location-centric, right? We're in New York. We want everybody to come here. Or in Texas. Now you open the doors with a huge pipeline of talents where you can tap into and also open into a new market you wouldn't even consider. If you consider the traditional sales-led growth, you'll be focusing, hey, we're going to have an enterprise sales rep in each location. So it's a great thing for us to disrupt our traditional way of thinking and really think about it. Yeah, it should be outcome measured instead of, is it based on where you live, right? What's the cost of living? It's really about what's the productivity you can bring to the table. I completely agree. One of my favorite portfolio companies is called ActiveTrack, and they do a team productivity analytics, primarily leveraged for, for remote workers nowadays, it seems. And once you have the data and you can have a qualitative analysis of how much someone is producing, again, it, it seems wrong to compensate someone based upon where they live or whether they drive to the office or not, as opposed to what, what their output is and the quality of their work. And I think what I'm seeing is a shortage in talent right now that seems to be accelerating. And if that's accelerating, I hope what happens is we all get better at leveraging the right resources regardless of their location. And I think that will start to really change how the world thinks about it. I already have friends that live in small towns like where I'm from, where you know, the wealthiest people in the town are tech workers that work from home, you know, and, and by doing that, those tech workers often want to buy local when it comes to food, for example, you know, whether it's local vegetable produce or meat from farmers. It's an interesting marriage of being able to work remotely and shop locally in some of those situations. I think we can shorten the gap from a supply chain perspective, both for talent and for resources. I mean, how many times in the past when you've tried to hire technical talent in a foreign country, did you have to use a staffing agency who may be contracted with another staffing agency? And you're two or three levels removed from the actual person you're working with. My wife's a nurse and she gets into that all the time where they'll try to hire with one firm and that firm is subcontracted to another firm and that firm is subcontracted somewhere else. And then they work in a doctor's office where she actually works. And so I, I hope that things are changing here in a very good direction. And it seems like even as we exit the COVID you know, lockdown, we're still working remote and we're bringing with us lots of new skills that I think will help us innovate much more quickly. Mm -hmm. So the major shift we have seen is continual massive digital transformation. That actually has been accelerated by COVID. Companies start to move to the cloud, but 
our prediction is this hybrid environment going to stay for the next extended period of time because you still have the banks, have a mainframe, have the banks, have a cloud computing, but then have this dispersed technology tooling generate a lot of the data. You need to have a better view, better visibility. The other one, just to tag along what you talk about, it you know, consume locally actually is a great thing. We can also reduce the carbon footprint, and we also see there's a migration of workforces from used to be metropolitan to other places like Texas. You know, I work with a couple of customers, larger financial, they relocated to Texas. Why? There's access to the talent pools, universities, no tags, you know, bigger space compared to your shoebox apartment in New York City. And there's a lot of value, but that also help us, uh, you know, shorten the gap, you know, close the gap of this disparity. As we all know, we have 20% of people generate the majority of the, the high income, right? Cover the entire country. And then how can we improve the overall well-being and life quality? And that will help. That also help developing local economy. I, I agree with what you said. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We're not only seeing that in the enterprise, but we're seeing a different sort of digital transformation in the small business where many organizations that didn't operate digitally, they may have used paper or even local computing are now moving to more modern compute infrastructure, which opens up a lot of opportunity for cybersecurity companies because those companies now have a cyber risk just as much as the large companies. And if you follow the news, you know, every once in a while you see a large company with you know ransomware or hit with malware or something like that. But more commonly, it's a school or a library or some small business in a small town. And it's really hard for those companies to get the help they need because we just don't have that kind of infrastructure built nationwide or even globally yet. In addition, it's also a shortage of security talent, right? When you look at an SME, oftentimes you have one IT person, manage IT, desktop, but also security. And then what type of training, how sophisticated those skill sets to defend against malware, ransomware exploits is very, very difficult. So where we see the opportunities, uh, clearly for a large enterprise, there are always a halo effects. They're early adopters for the new technology. They test it out and then there's repulling down to the rest of the market. For SMB, you know, I think the biggest opportunity is really managed service. And you have experience with SolarWinds, right? And a managed service is about delivering an outcome not about tooling, is really combine tooling, process, technology, and people into an outcome package, but then we have to deliver against that promise. So it's about also the volume, the scale. How can you get a broader distribution system instead of you know, selling a one-on-one basis? That's where I think a product-led growth is going to be a key driver and um, you know, expanding that distribution system. I think you're right. You know, I've seen a lot of MSSPs or managed security service providers that have pretty robust staffs and, and, and tool sets to provide that managed service to the to medium-sized businesses. But when you go to the regular MSPs, which now are sometimes calling themselves MSP pluses, and that they're typical managed services plus some security, there's just not enough available talent to help as many of those companies as they'd like. And so I think what we're seeing now you know, both uh, with our government and, and within private industry is continuing to move us forward very rapidly. And I see lots of opportunities. You know, if you're young out there and you're listening to the podcast and you're thinking about a career in technology, there is a tremendous amount of free training available through colleges, through tech companies that offer it, that you can self-study and teach yourself a lot about cybersecurity 
and get an entry-level job with no further education in that area. And so I, it's a great time, I think, to be getting started in this industry. You know, I, I self-taught myself. I joined the Air Force and I received some fundamental training, but a lot of what I did was was self-taught. And it served me really well in my career as an engineer and then an executive and now as an investor. And I think that's really fascinating that companies provide that sort of education for free because they're really trying to recruit people and they need them that badly. Yeah, so we actually partner with NYU, build a couple of special programs for on-the-job training for some early cybersecurity professional in order to advance to the next level of the career. But on the other hand, I do agree with you on the pipeline. We do have a pipeline problem. If you think about cyber education, it just started for the last couple of years ago. When I was in school, there's no cyber. And the, talking about lifetime learning is all about learning. You have to learn everything on your own, get a certification, and then about the real job learning. It takes a village to solve the problem, right? You need to work with the government, educational institutions, and the technology providers to create this ecosystem. There's a training through the pipeline, and then there's apprenticeship or internship available for the candidate to continue to learn and grow. And then once you get there, there's about coaching and mentoring. So I always think a CISO is actually not an easy job. If you think about CISO, you need to be technical. You also need to have a very, very strong communication skills. And then you also have to be a borderline politician because you have to negotiate on budget, business priority among various stakeholders. And then it takes a lot to, to mature as a very senior cybersecurity professional. So I think there's a lot of opportunities. We definitely see a demand from customers, the community. There are cases the customer asks, hey, we have all these openings. Can you even help us recommend some potential candidates? Yeah, I, I do a lot of help with placing people into my portfolio. And 18 months ago, two years ago, even a year ago, it was a lot easier. And people kind of held back from changing jobs, I think, with COVID for a while, unless they were laid off and, of course, they were looking. But now it seems that people are more open to taking the risk and maybe starting something new. And... I have a deep pipeline of resources from 30 years of doing this, and I'll tell you, not many of them are available. And what's also interesting is, I think more so than any other time in my life, I'm noticing that the people I work with daily on Zoom and Slack are the people I want to spend time with socially as well. I mean, those are my strongest relationships because I don't really get to see anybody else. And so I think that having a great culture and a place where people can create friendships at work and enjoy working together is going to be the number one reason why people stay because you can always make more money somewhere else. And in a time when skills are at such a shortage, you can change jobs pretty frequently if you want to. But if you have a team that you really like working with and a great CEO like yourself, then I think that really provides a level of happiness and satisfaction in life. It's hard to get otherwise. I did an interview for a data scientist role. Actually, we had exactly the same conversation. I said, what is important? There's certain things you can price it, certain things you cannot price it, right? If you follow Ray Dalio, he wrote this about principle, right? Life is about building meaningful relationship, long-term meaningful relationship with people. It doesn't need to be a lot, but it's really about it the meaningfulness behind it. So talking about the culture. So you work in a large company. You were founder of one of the largest company. I work with Accenture, many of the largest company I can imagine. One of the things I learned from that, how I applied to the startup is a key culture setup. You have to over communicate the culture and value with our employees. I do this every single week on Monday at our nine o'clock. So what is important thing for us is 
the best idea wins. No politics, zero tolerance to politics. It's not about your job title. It's not about hierarchy. If you have the best idea, raise your hand and talk about that. Convince people with data, using data to make your case, and then that's the best. We encourage everybody to disagree. And the second thing is about you know, own what you have, right? We all professionals, so we have to own the outcome. We are responsible. If things that we all fail, we just have to say, hey, we screwed up. Let's fix it. Let's find out what's the problem. Don't be shy about that sense of urgency. I don't think there's an eternal differentiator. You know, every single company, you're an investor, you look at their deck, the competitive differentiator, everyone claims, hey, technology, we do X, Y, Z. Eventually, they'll catch up. Why we're better than IBM? Why you should work here? Because we all act with a sense of urgency. We all have great ideas. If we don't execute against that based on agility, we're losing, right? Why customers switch? A lot of time is it because you listen to me. You delivered against what you told me compared to 20,000 other vendors. So that's something we keep talking about. Hey, do we have the sense of urgency to deliver against and then drive home because I own this? That's the place where you're going to be successful. You know, it's interesting that you say that as an investor and a product guy, right? I'm, I'm not a career educated in type of investor. I look at the product first. Is it a cool product? Is it well built? Does it, does it have an interesting you know, set of features that I think are well positioned for the future? Do I like the market? And then I meet the team if all those things are, are positive. And so often in early stage companies, I meet a team that is hungry and humble and intelligent, but just hasn't done it before. And they really need some coaching and advice. And one of the things I always ask myself, because I like to work with a company for at least two or three months and get to know them before I make an investment decision. Because once I make an investment decision and become an advisor, I might be spending a lot of time with those people. And I always ask myself, like, if it's nine o'clock at night and that person calls me, am I going to be looking forward to talking to them? Or am I going to groan and be like, oh, that person again. And those things are super important not only as an investor, but as a customer, you know, as an employee, do you like the people you're working with? And more and more, what I find is those relationships inside the company or with your, your vendors are super important. And oftentimes, you know, I bought technology from the same person as they've changed jobs three or four times in their career, because I know that person is trustworthy. I know they'll be there when I need them. And I know that they're able to establish a sense of urgency, like you said. And that's ultra key in a world where we're interrupt driven all day and there's a lot of things coming at us, knowing when to focus and, and how to treat people is a real differentiator for sure. You hit on a very key word is a trust. You know, in cyber business, what do we sell? We sell trust. And then where's the trust? The product is there, is in the cloud. Is a customer trust our ability to detect, to protect, to deliver against the promise we told them. That's really the bottom line. It doesn't matter which technology it is. And then same thing as a people, you know, you work with a lot of startup. When the startup is a roller coaster, one day you're in the top of the mountain, the other day you have to reflect why am I doing this? And you need to have the grit, the vision, the belief. You know, I always tell our team is actually making mistakes is a good thing, but you need to figure out how did you fall and why we fall and then why we're not going to fall again. And that reflection point, actually we learn way more than the success. We celebrate success, but sometimes success can be one-off. I don't think in our industry, we talk enough about learning from failure. Unfortunately, our media is all about success, the unicorn, it happens. 
but there's a selection bias. A lot of people dead. It never happened. Nobody captured that story, right? So we need to learn from that. Get smart about that, and then go back to the story of a trust. You know, with a startup, everybody's a Navy SEALs. They are because they're multitasking. We trust each other. We put each other's livelihoods, and we depend on that. That's why this circle of trust is so important. And that's why I think you keep that culture will make a company more competitive compared to growing, you know, into、um, IBM style. But I think for management, the challenge is to maintain that culture. How can we convert every new hire? Start to get in this hall to believe in that, and slowly you're going to eventually hit the bottleneck when you get to the growth stage, right? You're going to get to the stage you don't remember how you hired or everybody's name, but still be cognizant about it. That's the intangible value for the company. You know that may be the the key differentiator between how fast growing venture funded startups operate versus later stage and lifestyle businesses. In that, when you're in a startup, you're in a race. As a company, you are racing your competitors. And when you're trying to grow that fast, you have to have a, a spirit of rapid experimentation and quick failures. And you have to live by that as a team. You have to be willing to take chances, take small chances, measured experiments, fail fast, and replan, and keep going. And sometimes you do run into walls, and you have to stop and back up and turn and try a different direction. But it's that willingness as a team to fail together, to look at failures as learnings, and count those as successes if you're able to learn from it and redirect your efforts. I think that's so important. What you said. I love working with companies that embrace that spirit of experimentation and failing fast because I think it speaks a lot to how well they work together and how much they trust each other as a team. Yeah, take an educated guess, right? There's always an opportunity cost, but then if you don't try, you you can only regret. Yeah, so we are embracing product-led growth. You know, I always say that's one of the four levers: inbound, outbound, the channel, product-led growth. We have amazing product. You know, built by experts in the domain, built by data scientists. You know, combining security, offensive security knowledge with data science, and it's a really powerful tool. But it's not out there. You know, we are really embracing this journey, letting product to drive more of the next stage of the growth. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the product. If that's cool with you,、mm-hmm. you know, I've I've invested in, you know, internal attack surface management companies and external attack surface management companies. I haven't really seen a, a cyber risk management company before. Let's talk a little bit more about what that means, maybe to some of our less technical users. Sure. So maybe we can start to talk about the Colonial Pipeline. Right, is on the headline news. Everybody heard about it, and there's a lot of discussion. You know, IT, OT, among all the various terminologies. But if I put in the layman terms, how did they get hacked? It's really based on the weaknesses of their system, so to speak, a vulnerability. So vulnerabilities can mean different things to different people. Let me walk you through how the offensive guys, bad guys, will compromise your system. Typically, they will send Josh a phishing email and then say. This is a legit click here, and then bring you to another website. So what I'm doing is we're exploiting human vulnerabilities. You trust, you click, and then possibly I can get into your internal environment. I can, you know, privilege access and get to the next level of、uh, access. Get to your key systems, your domain controllers. I can move laterally within your system. I can exploit your vulnerabilities in your key system or applications. 
or I can check some of the configuration you have. Maybe you bought a firewall, you save the password the same as a manufacturing password. If you think about this approach, the, the bad actor never use one way to get into your system. They use a combination of vectors, whether it's a vulnerability, configuration, or identity. A combination make me a super successful, do anything possible. But then when you look at the defensive side, how does enterprise or even smaller, medium-sized business defend? Larger enterprises have a separate swim lanes. You have very much a siloed organization. One team manage vulnerability, one team manage identity, another team maybe configuration or application. No one really tie everything together, right? If you think about it, why the offensive DNA is such a differentiator, you know, that's in our blood because we always think like a hacker to break the things. And what we bring into the market is, uh, hey, everybody, status quo is a time to be challenged. Let's take a different approach. Let's look at our cyber exposure holistically, whether it's inside out or outside in. Let's also look at some of the assets you own. You may not even know, especially in the time of digital transformation, their developers turn on new system in AWS all the time, but it has never been scanned, never been evaluated whether they have weaknesses. So that's where the key value prop is to provide that complete visibility Many times when we talk to CISO is, if you don't know what you own, how do you protect? Then we know what we own. That's our complete assets. Then do we know what's our exposure? You know, what are the weakest link in my entire environment? You talk about the skill shortage, talent shortage. So if we don't have enough people today, there's 4 million job openings globally in cyber. And what can we do? The only answer is bots, right? It's automation. How can we have automation do as much as possible of the tedious, repetitive work? So let's look at the life cycle. First is detect, know what's our exposure. Second, we need to make a decision to prioritize. We work with the customers that have hundreds of millions of vulnerabilities. You know, where do you start? How can you fix? And then if we prioritize, what's the parameter? What's the criteria to prioritize? What's the context? Is it important for me from a business standpoint or are there actually ransomwares out there? And once we prioritize, we know what we do, let's automate that remediation process. And whether it's with a downstream system, with a patching system, let's using system to do more automation. And then we can also simulate. Simulate in the sense is, did we fix the right thing? And how much risk help us reduce? And then can we also simulate do, are we defensible? You know, if we do have another bad actor, what are our weaknesses in our control environment? And then let's communicate to the stakeholders, various stakeholders and the board, what's our risk posture, you know, to our regulators and a compliance team. So think through that. I was summarizing into two roles. One is we do translator. We're a translator. We translate the technical issues into a risk that is understandable across various uh, stakeholders. The second one is orchestrator. If we only translate, I'm only a recommendation system. But when you truly orchestrate the remediation, that becomes really, really powerful. We remove the manual process off the table. I, I love the whole thing. And by the way, I love how you're describing it. It's fantastic. It's easy to understand. It speaks right to what you're doing. And I can imagine a broad ecosystem of partners for you and products that you orchestrate to complete the circle on some of those tasks. You know, I, I wish this was a video 
podcast instead of audio only. I'd love to show off the product for some people. Maybe we can get together at a later time and, and do a demo and, and make that happen. But wow, Lisa, this has been a joy today. You, you've been one of the best podcast guests I've ever had. I just love your answers. You're very charismatic. It's been a lot of fun. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up? It's a pleasure to talk to a founder. <laughs> I think it's very different when you talk to an investor or a customer. I think you probably really appreciate the growing pain with the growing technologies. And uh, yeah, love to keep the conversation going. I love to pick your brain on uh, how can we learn fast, avoid mistakes, uh, unnecessary mistakes, and then continue on that path of growth. Well, call me anytime. This has been great. And uh, thank you so much. This has been awesome. All right. All right. Bye-bye, Lisa. Sounds good. That's it, everyone. And thank you for joining Capital Geek. Subscribe via Apple, Stitcher, or any platform where you usually find fantastic podcasts. Tune in again soon for another great episode of Capital Geek.